I'm attempting to gather and formalize and collate the various events that are occurring at the end of the, of the age, of this age, and the beginning of the millennium. We know that the millennium will extend for a thousand years and Satan will be bound during this time and, be, and will not be able to influence uh, mankind upon the earth. We observed in the last uh, session that there are certain ones who are seated on thrones and who are commissioned to rule in the millennium. It raises the question, the broader question, what then is the purpose of the millennium? Why is there a millennium? Some would suggest, and they would be true, they would be accurate, but not complete in their, in their assessment. Some would suggest that because Christ on the earth was cut off in the middle of the week, to coin a phrase from the book of Daniel that speaks of the seventy prophetic weeks, that he's being allowed to finish his reign on the earth. And they will point to the fact, and accurately so, I might add, that the millennium coming as it is in the seventh year, seven thousand year, is by nature designed to be a rule, a period of rule that is characterized by peace, which includes the cessation of war and conflict and a harmonious putting forth of divine righteousness upon the earth. All of that is true, but it's not the why. It, it will be environmental, meaning it will be part of the how. But the why, I mean, the Lord could easily skip the millennium, bring judgment and move on to the next epoch the next stage, but settling as he does in the millennium for a thousand years, focusing on that, there's a key and critical function to be performed during this time. And it relates in principal part to unfinished business during this time, the time we're in. It comes as quite a surprise to most churchgoers that there's a need for more than will be accomplished by the time we go to heaven, when we die. Now, for many, there's great comfort in the fact that when you die after a turbulent life, you get to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus, 
trusted him and were saved, uh, you accepted the salvation and pardon of your sins. But that's only the beginning of salvation. You say, what do you mean? You know, is the cross not sufficient? Oh, no, no, that's conflating things that do not belong together. The cross, of course, satisfied the requirements of God for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. Sure, and whoever believes in Christ, he can forgive their sins regardless of the nature of their sins and regardless of the quantum of their sins. So no, there's no deficiency in the efficacy of the cross. No. But that's to put the matter as an either-or, and it's not either-or. It's not either the cross is sufficient or it's not sufficient. No, there's more to it than that. Because in the message that salvation is the goal, the gospel then becomes this partial truth. A, God created man. B, man sinned. C, Christ died, ergo the cross, died to provide salvation, to pay the price for the sins of mankind. And D, if we accept that substitutionary death, then we go to heaven when we die. All of that's true, but it begs this central question. Why did God create man in the first place? Because that gospel argues that God created man to save him because he knew man would sin so, but he went ahead and created him anyway, and therefore the salvation offered to him by the, the, the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, all of which we believe this is fundamental stuff. But there's more to it than that. That's my point. And if you don't get to the full compilation of all of this, then you're actually preaching a partial gospel. I know it's the popular gospel. It's popularized by the Romans because it was a way to charge access for heaven. And it remained popular by evangelicals who are, by and large, the spawn, the theological spawn of Romanism. It begs the question, why would God create man and save him if he knew ahead of time man would sin? Why simply avoid the whole issue? There's no reason for that. There's no, there is no original intentional purpose for the creation of man if yours is the gospel of remediation or conciliation, where the stated purpose is to save him. If you're going to make him to save him, don't make him at all. 
because there's no purpose in that. And some will argue, I was talking to this one fellow, he's a well-known author, and he had read my book on, uh, called My Father, My Father, and so he came, he knew he was going to meet with me, so he did his homework, and he said to me, he said, what if, he said, you believe that God created man with the intention of having a son? And I said, well, that's, that's not an inaccurate statement of what I've said. I've said more than that, but that's not an inaccurate rendition of it. It's a partial rendition, and it doesn't violate or contradict the full scope of what I'm saying. So let's go with that for now. Then he said to me, what if, what if God created man to have an experience? I looked at him narrowly and said, this is idiocy. I could see the buffoonery in him. He's one of these fellows who became enormously popular writing fiction and assuming he was writing theology. And so, you know, he on the lecture circuit, he gets to say these things and sound cool. And I said to him, I said, that's, that's folly. If you know the end of every matter from the beginning, what is the occasion for an experience? How are you going to have an experience if you know the end of everything from the beginning? And it was the first time he had actually even thought about that. And you could see him just step back as he said, huh, hadn't thought about that. The point is God did not create man just to save him. That's a myopic view of the gospel. What was the original intent? Because this is what's perfected in the millennium and it's not finished when you go to heaven. That's my point. Heaven is a, is a destination that is temporary. We should have known that from the very beginning where heaven was described as a created realm. In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, all of the heavens and the earth. So just as surely as the earth was created in that same commencement of the epoch, so as surely the heavens were created. And the Bible speaks of them in, in um, uh, Genesis as God having created the heavens in all their vast array and the hosts of heaven, the hosts. Host, the term subsequently described as spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Hosts are often referred to as forces and we know that the host of heaven included fallen angels. So the reference to God creating the heavens is God creating the location 
in which he vested his throne within creation, which is to say he vested authority for the rule and governance of creation and so the throne migrates initially placed in heaven and then migrates into the earth to serve both the function of rule and judgment. Well, these things are plain. The problem is we've had children deconstructing Scripture for us and, and belligerent children quite often because once you confront them with the evidence of Scripture, they choose their favorite uh, loyalties over and above what is actually true. And part of what is being reaped today in terms of this harvest of ignorance and immaturity is that when you feed, when you feed adults on pablum, on milk, they will not develop their spiritual musculature and their spiritual structure. The church today cannot be confused with anything mature. It is a collection of children and that's why they can't discern when con men, liars, thieves, pimps populate the ranks of the leadership and lead them by telling them what they want to hear. There's much to be finished. My point is that there's a great deal to be finished and it's not complete by you going to heaven. The Lord will bring out of heaven everyone who ends up in heaven. And if you die before the return of the Lord, you'll and you once acknowledge Jesus as Savior, He'll bring you back to complete the process by which you get to acknowledge Him as Lord. The millennium is about the Lordship of Jesus to perfect a people to the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants. I was talking to a man just recently who walked with us for a, for a time and I was shocked when he said, well, I just, I just don't believe that all this emphasis we're placing on being mature is an accurate emphasis. I was floored because I would think that whenever you quit drinking milk, your attention would be turned to being mature because the mysteries of God and of Christ are the reserve for the mature. They're the dietary reserve for the mature. You cannot possibly fulfill God's purpose for creating man and integrating the spirits of men into the corpus of Christ, the spiritual man. You cannot possibly accomplish God's purposes. 
without becoming mature. As long as you remain infants, your motivation will be your lusts, the lust of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, the pride of life. You'll be reckless, you will throw off restraint, you'll do what you want to do, and inevitably you will create a God in your own image. And even the scriptures tell us the end of that cycle, which culminates, of course, as all cycles, with the return of the Lord. The end of that cycle is a great falling away. So the question remains, what then is the purpose of the millennium and how does it fit into this finishing process? Heaven, listen, listen, let me be very clear, let me be abundantly clear, even to the point of confrontational and maybe even pugilistic. Heaven is not designed for salvation. The salvation of the soul can only be accomplished by the Lord's discipline, fully given and fully received. The disciplining of the Lord is likened unto a rod and a rod of iron. Why a rod? A rod is not for beating anybody. And a rod of iron isn't to beat anybody severely. A rod is a standard. Before God brings judgment on any matter, He brings out the standard and gives people the opportunity to choreograph their behaviors to reflect the standard. No such operation takes place in heaven. It is not referred to it is not implied, it's not remotely stated. Heaven is a place primarily to wait. Even Jesus has been held up in the heavens waiting until that remnant of believers on the earth chosen from amongst All of those who say they believe, like five wise virgins chosen from among ten, the other five being foolish, are ready. Revelation 19, the bride makes herself ready by wearing the righteousness of Christ. Washed in the blood of the Lamb, presented as a glorious and radiant church who will not be an embarrassment to the Lord when He returns. But we all know more people than who who are not made ready by the time they die than who actually live righteous lives. You know, we say preachers preach them into heaven by largely ignoring 
the mixture that their lives represented on the earth. No, they didn't preach them into heaven, they got to go to heaven because the nature of heaven is a holding place until all of what God is doing on the earth is finished. You're not suddenly made perfect by being taken out of this world and taken to heaven. No, when your time has come to die, you will die and you'll die in the condition in which you are at that time. Some will experience the complete saving of their souls upon the earth. What does it mean to save your soul? Saving means to take back, to rescue, meaning the thing was in jeopardy, so it's been taken back from jeopardy. So saving of the soul is different from saving of the spirit. Saving of the spirit is a very straightforward, very direct matter. The Holy Spirit bears witness not with your soul but with your spirit that you are the sons of God. For the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. Means your spirit has a mind, your spirit has a will, and your spirit is capable of love. And you may love God. You may love God with your spirit and be conformed to Him in your spirit. What is saved and saved to the utmost is your spirit. Saving of your soul is deliberately referenced in Scripture as a process, not as a one-time occurrence. I understand that this flies straight in the face of every popular rendition of this in evangelical circles, but it's incorrect. That's why we have people, the majority of whom can be so easily led astray by deceiving spirits, by deceiving humans, and by doctrines of devils. They give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. It's why the present character of the church is so disabled that idiotic politicians, fraud, fraudsters, thieves and vagabonds can so readily appeal to the unsaved soul. If your soul remains unsaved, it will continue to have darkness in it that, does, that wars with your spirit. So, and that's the condition in which the majority of people who have had a salvation experience die. You think God didn't know this? Saving of the soul is rescuing, primarily it is rescuing your emotions and the behaviors that are engendered by your emotions rescuing them from the control of the devil because that's the area in which he's able to rule. He rules over the emotions of your soul because you make decisions on the basis of your emotions. You justify those decisions on the basis of your reason. The soul that is saved 
is able to re reject and repudiate the emotions that the enemy controls and with that the demonic influence of evil spirits upon the decision-making of the soul. At that point you're available to be under the rule of your spirit and you walk righteously in the earth in all of your affairs. That process is just that, a process. So you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not about things you do, it's not about religious things. It's about the process by which the soul, the emotions of the soul, are captured and brought back again under the rule of your spirit. In the millennium, all those who have unfinished business in this regard are going to be ruled over. The standard of rule in the millennium is called a rod of iron because a rod is a measuring stick and iron means it's not negotiable. Christ is Himself that rod of iron. He's the standard of divine rectitude and you can't negotiate with Him. You can't do something good for God and hope to bribe your way that way. Religion teaches that in one form or another but it doesn't work. If you have been received as a son, meaning the Spirit of God bears witness and testimony with your spirit that you're a son of God, you're born again. But as in every case of new birth, you're born again as a child. You're not capable in that condition of carrying the glory of God. You're not capable in that condition of exact representation which is the purpose of a mature son. The two cannot be conflated, doesn't happen, doesn't matter how you love for that to come about, won't happen. And as to universal salvation, meaning everybody will eventually be saved, that's about as nonsensical as you can get. I don't even have the words to speak to that idiocy because that suggests that you end up that way without being conformed to Christ. The only thing in the world that has any eternal value to God is that which reflects the nature of God and the only possibility of the reflecting of the nature of God is by strict conformation to the standard of the rule of the rod of iron. You cannot come to that without being conformed to Christ and you have no purpose in creation if you do not have the purpose of bearing the glory of God, which is to say Christ who is your life appears in you and through you. The idiocy of the notion of universal salvation betrays a shocking lack of understanding of divine intentionality and would set aside choice as being a non-issue. You can't, that will not be permitted. But that folly 
will be starkly confronted in the millennium and at that time. Now, who will be ruled over? The answer to that question is number one, the largest number of people to be ruled over will be the unsaved people who made it through the events leading up to the return of the Lord. They will be the largest number in the millennium and they will be all ruled over. The unrighteous dead will remain in hell during all that period. Number two, who will be ruled over? Those whose souls were not saved but their spirits were saved because and inasmuch as they are designated as children of God but as immature children because they refused the discipline of the Lord inasmuch as it didn't come to them on their terms, they will be ruled over. Who will rule over? Who sits on thrones to rule? Those who in this life, their souls were saved in the way that souls are saved which is that at every appearing of the Lord, when the Lord appears to you by revelation, by insight, by example, by teaching of Scripture, in any and every form in which the true nature of Christ in His submitted, obedient relationship to God the Father has been set before you, you bow to it in obedience. You learn obedience by the things you suffer. And obedience is the means by which the soul is actually saved. It's saved from your control, or rather it's saved from the control of Satan who controls it through the emotions, controls the soul through the emotions, and it's brought back under the rule of the Spirit so God may express Himself in the earth through the gifts He placed within your soul. It's the way we carry the presence of God in relationship to other people, in relationship to our circumstances, and especially in relationship to the truth, that's the indication that our souls are saved. Jesus said it this way, or it is said this way, as Jesus was, as I am, Jesus said, so shall you be in this present world. It's not good deeds that you may do that make you the light of the world. It's when you become a partaker of the divine standard that identifies Christ as the representational Son of God, that you in that state are judged to be mature and capable of carrying the glory of God in representation in the earth. That's the result of your soul being saved. If it's not saved, 
then you'll be ruled over until it is in the millennium because there you don't have free will. In the millennium and at that time, you do not have free will. It's strict obedience. So for people for whom the word obedience is a dirty word now, my goodness, I hate to think how the worm would not die and the fire would not quench and how the gnashing of teeth and weeping will characterize that part of their existence in the millennium until they yield to the sovereignty of Christ. Who will rule? Those who now apply the standard of Christ to their lives and are transformed by it. Now they are being ruled by the rod of iron and then in the millennium they will have learned to rule or they will have learned the rule of the rod of iron, they won't need to learn it then, they're learning it now. Sitting on thrones is an indication of possessing authority. Even in the millennium, no one will have any other authority except the authority of Christ. Delegates of Christ then, like we are given the opportunity to be delegates of Christ now. This age will simply move over into that age where the key and critical factor will be the exurpation, the removal from our environment of everything that offends, the chief offender being put in the bottomless pit so that we can hear and at that point, at that point, the only choice we can be given is that of obedience. But until the sinful nature is cured ultimately within the life of one who has received Christ and they grow up, until then they'll remain in outer darkness. And that's where I want to go when we speak of the city, the residence of the bride, the dwelling place of the administration and those who administrate the rule of Christ in the millennium. Continue with me then and we'll talk about it. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye now.